Welcome to Data Bytes. I'm Susan Wong. And I'm Jesse Chizeski Kay. Susan and I are two statisticians, and we want to bring statistics closer to you. We'll touch on topics in big data, data science, machine learning, artificial intelligence, and the list may grow. In this episode, we talk about a number of miscellaneous news updates regarding facial recognition technology. For example, did you know that there is a software just for recognizing panda faces? And then we talk about how much we trust AI-generated profiles for Airbnb. Let's get started. Facial recognition has come up in the news fairly frequently these past few weeks. None of them alone are particularly worthy of an in-depth discussion, but I thought maybe we could do a rapid-fire sequence of updates on what each of these articles talked about so we can get a cohesive view of where we as a society stand with facial recognition technology. Let's go for it. So the first piece of news concerns how the city of San Francisco voted to ban facial recognition on May 14th. We should be clear that this was a vote by the Board of Supervisors of San Francisco, a rather small group, and they voted strongly in favor of banning city government and its agencies from using facial recognition technology as part of surveillance. So they can still use police body cameras and other forms of surveillance cameras, but those cameras and accompanying software should not have a capability of identifying faces. We talked a lot about AI-powered facial recognition software that works really well. Um, Are any such software known to be used for law enforcement by city governments in general? Yes. In fact, I can't remember if we talked about this before, but Amazon makes one called Recognition. That's um, with a K instead of a C in Recognition. Um, And this uses deep learning. It's not quite clear how widely... Uh, the software is currently used. But for example, there is at least one county in Oregon that I found in the news that uses it for locating persons of interest. And notably, recognition also came up in the news when it was pitched to Immigration and Customs Enforcement, ICE, um, and that resulted in a huge backlash for the company. A study published by the MIT Media Lab found that recognition doesn't work particularly well. Um, One of the findings was that the algorithm works best for light-skinned individuals. So for darker-skinned folks, the um, the software just didn't do a good enough job of identification. And we're not talking about finding just the right person, but recognition even had trouble with accurately identifying genders of darker skinned individuals. So one consequence might be that recognition could result in more unjust arrests for individuals with darker skin tones. Yeah, that's certainly one problem that we'll get back to later again. Um, Alas, one distinction to note is that San Francisco's ban merely extends to government agencies. It doesn't prevent private companies from using surveillance and facial recognition systems. Yeah, so maybe the the purpose of the ban is ultimately to protect against things like incorrect or unjust arrests that could result from the the algorithms, or or maybe something like that related to um, to incarcerations. Yeah, that's what it sounds like. Speaking of Amazon and recognition, in late May, Amazon's shareholders held a vote on whether to limit its sale. 
Um, there were actually two proposals put forward. Um, one of the proposals asked the board to support an independent study to investigate whether the recognition software might, um, and in quotes, they say, unfairly or disproportionately target or surveil pay people of color, immigrants, and activities in the United States, end quote. And also they wanted to see whether it was sold to, say, authoritarian governments abroad. That's the first proposal. The second proposal asked the company to stop selling the software to government agencies. Well, the, the second proposal seems a lot more drastic than the first, uh, given that we talked about uh, regarding this recognition software. Um, it, it makes sense why these would be brought up. So, so what happened with the vote? What's really interesting before we even get to the vote is that Amazon went to the SEC, the Securities Exchange Commission, to try to stop the proposals from going to a vote in the first place. This is because groups like the ACLU have expressed strong support for the proposals. However, given that we said the vote happened, we know the SEC did not prevent the proposals from being voted on. But the first proposal that asked for an independent study only got 27.5% of votes in support. And for the more heavy-handed proposal asking for stoppage of sales of recognition to government agencies, that only garnered 2.4% of the votes in favor. So neither of the proposals passed. I, I would have thought that at least the one that asked for an independent study uh, might have you know, received some, you know, enough support to pass, or at least more support. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Given all the sort of negative news coverage of recognition, it seems like asking for an independent study isn't asking for too much. Um, but what's been discussed in some of these news articles is that the way that these votes are set up, a proposal literally needs 50 or more percent, 50 percent or more of the votes to be positive to pass. Jeff Bezos, um, Amazon CEO controls 16% of the company's shares. And if that's not enough to make it hard, the way that the rules are written, investors who don't vote, so the people who abstain, are counted as supporting the board of directors recommendation. So yeah, there's, they, they're making it really, really hard to pass anything. Yeah, that does sound really hard. And I just, I wonder how many shareholders even just, just don't vote. It's probably a lot. In, in fact, there's a financial data firm called FactSet that shows um, historically no shareholder resolution at Amazon has ever passed, which really makes sense now given how hard it is to muster up enough votes. Yeah, so in retrospect, it actually kind of seems silly that they thought they needed to go to the SEC to prevent the vote from happening when historically no shareholder resolution has ever been passed at Amazon. Yeah, it almost sounds like they're giving themselves more bad PR yeah. than that they didn't really need in the first place. Yeah. <laughs> when it comes to facial recognition being a danger to civil rights, um, it's interesting because this is something that both Democrats and Republicans agree on. Which is quite refreshing. That's right. In America, government doesn't want government to have the ability to use facial recognition software, right? This is one of the few things that everybody agrees on. Um, at the other extreme, of course, we have China, where facial recognition is so widely used for policing and immigration authorities. There was a story that surfaced about how police picked out a wanted fugitive out of a crowd of 60,000 people at a concert. 
And in some cities, there are these huge LED screens, so the size of billboards that show faces of jaywalkers. Oh, to publicly shame them. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how effective that is, though, because, you know, if they're everywhere and if there are a lot of people that are that are being shamed, it might just feel like one of those billboards you see off the highway here in the States. You see them and you forget them. Uh, and it doesn't really make you remember any any faces. Like I couldn't tell you who's the face of some of these companies that that advertise off the highway anyway, right? So <laughs> right, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but beyond that, China really wants to be able to um, sort of double down on facial recognition. Um, their goal is to be able to build such an efficient slash accurate facial recognition system that it could recognize all 1.4 billion citizens within three seconds with a 90% accuracy rate. Now that's big data. <laughs> yeah, and to do it within three seconds, that's oh, got to be really, really hard to do. Yeah. <laughs> Getting to a smaller scale, though, another piece of news that came out recently talked about how facial recognition is also used in a slightly different way in China. And it turns out that um, this is a new system that is used to perform facial recognition on pandas. Is that recognizing pandas from other critters in the forest? No, this is literally about telling individual pandas apart from each other. So researchers trained their model um, using 120,000 images and 10,000 video clips of pandas. Um, and uh, they took two years to build this model. The goal is not just to give tourists detailed bios on the pandas that they see, but also to help keep track of pandas better for purposes of conservation. Oh, that's such a nice idea. I like it. <laughs> and it's a really cute one, too. past episodes, we have discussed how artificial intelligence, um, like natural language processing, has been used to create text from automated journalism to suggested responses to emails and texts. And the suggested responses are not always the way we would like to respond, but we found it can help us to think twice before sending a harsh or negative reply. Since AI is stepping into many roles we used to have to do completely on our own, it is worth asking how well AI-generated texts are received. So several researchers at Cornell Tech, um, so this includes doctoral students Maurice Jacob and Xiao Ma and associate professor Moore Neyman, along with doctoral student Megan French and professor Jeffrey T. Hancock from Stanford, um, they all explored how people perceive AI-generated versus human-generated Airbnb host profiles. So in particular, how trustworthy Airbnb users uh, would find these two options. So Susan, do you ever use Airbnb? And what do you think about AI versus human-generated host profiles? I do use Airbnb from time to time. It's a great way to find a vacation rental if you're going somewhere with a group of friends. I don't know that I ever look carefully at the host profiles, though. I'm far more interested in the rental specs and the reviews. Yeah, I, I agree. 
And I mean, really, to me, it seems that as long as the information is accurate and, and not misleading, I'm not sure it really matters to me in terms of an Airbnb host profile. I, I would care more if I was unknowingly communicating with an AI. <laughs> uh, but um, but yeah, in this case, um, I, yeah, I'm not sure that, that um, I'd have preference for either. Well, the researchers um, had a conference paper and it's titled, AI-mediated communication, how the perception that profile text was written by AI affects trustworthiness. That's a mouthful. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Not to jump to the punchline, what do they find? Yeah, so they carried out several experiments on their primary question, which they stated to be, does the belief that AI may have a written may have written a profile affect evaluations by others. Okay, so that's their their question. And then to understand the results, I have to say a bit about how they carried out the experiments. So they had three different studies. Um, the first, um, in the first study, the subjects were presented with Airbnb profiles and were told they were either entirely human generated or entirely AI generated. Then in the second and third study, the studies, the subjects were told the profiles were either human or AI generated. So just to clarify, in the first study, the subjects knew profiles were either entirely AI generated or entirely human made profiles. Whereas in the second and third studies, what they had was sort of a mix of both human and AI generated profiles. Yes. Yeah. Well, um, that is what they were told. But actually, all the profiles presented were human generated. That's a twist in the story. (laughs) I actually think it'd be quite hard for AIs to write a good profile unless it was explicitly fed some information. Yeah, I I agree. Yeah, and, um, And the result is quite interesting. So the subjects had similar trustworthiness levels when they thought AI generated all the profiles and when they thought humans generated all the profiles. So when they knew that they were either all... AI generated or all human generated, they actually had similar trustworthiness levels. Um, but um, but actually, the, the two groups that were looking at these, the um, control and treatment groups, were presented with the, the same set of Airbnb host profiles. Um, but when the subjects thought there was a mix of the two, they trusted AI generated profiles less than the human ones. Ah, so... I suppose the first statement that you made was really about study one. Yes, yes. With study one, um, there wasn't a huge amount of difference between the two groups. But then when we talk about studies two and three, there now seems to be something interesting going on. Yes, yeah. And um, and so part of it is they actually had to try to figure out in the subsequent studies two and three um, whether they were human or, or AI generated because the, the participants had to you know figure, figure this out. They also included um, a measurement on the subject's AI score, which indicated how much they believed a profile was generated by the AI. So how do they then measure trustworthiness? Yeah, so um, so for trustworthiness, ultimately for the, the individual profiles, the subjects had to respond to three statements related to ability, benevolence, and integrity. So the, um, three ideas related to trustworthiness on a scale of zero to 100. And so the three statements that they had to rate 
um, were, so first, this is about each profile that they saw. So the first one is, this person maintains a clean, safe, and comfortable household. So that's related to ability. Um, statement two, this person will be concerned about satisfying my needs during this day. So that's benevolence. And then the third statement is, this person will not intentionally harm, overcharge, or scan me. So that's related to integrity. <laughs> And, uh, and then with those those three different scores, they then average them to get an overall perceived trustworthiness of the profile. That's a lot to extrapolate from just a single person's profile. <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> and I'm true. guessing some people are naturally more trustworthy than other people because they're just sort of more happy-go-lucky. So how is that factored in here? Yeah, okay. So they did try to account for that. Um, what they tried to measure then for each subject is um, what they called generalized trust, which is their overall level of trustworthiness. So they had that um, as a one of the variables measured on the subjects and also um, what they called an AI attitude score to capture if a subject had more positive or negative attitudes about AI. Um, there's also a, um, a trust baseline and that indicated if the actual profile they were looking at was already considered trustworthy or not. And that was based on a previous study. So was this study carried out at Cornell or Stanford? How were the subjects selected? Um, so they actually used um, Amazon Mechanical Turk. Um, sometimes you might just call it by the acronym AMT or MTurk. And selected for the, um, the first study 527 participants that had high approval rating. Uh, interesting. So we should say a little bit about MTurk. This is a crowdsourcing platform that can be used in various settings, such as to find participants for a study like this one. The workers on MTurk are somewhat self-selected um, and they get paid for their help in these bite-sized tasks. Um, they don't get paid a whole lot, so I have sometimes doubted the representativeness slash accuracy of experiments carried out on MTurk. That said, I know a lot of companies slash marketing or psychology research studies are done using this platform. Yeah, and, um, and so in this study, the participants were all adults in the US, and they were paid $1.20 for the expected six minutes of work. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, so uh, they did do though some checks on the participants to ensure that they were um, that the the subjects themselves were actually paying attention to the study and not just quickly clicking through the responses. So like if, if someone's uh, if one of the subjects' response time was under five seconds on average, um, it was unlikely that they actually read the content of the question or the the profile. So they would eliminate those individuals. So after doing some sort of um, kind of post processing of the um, the subjects kind of performance and scores, they were left with 389 subjects for the first study. And then they had a similar procedure for the second and third study, where in the second study, they had almost 200 subjects and then just over 200 for the third study. So we talked a little bit about study one. What's What are some the differences between study two and study three? Well, after carrying out study two, the researchers ended up wanting a better understanding. So in, in study two, they had um, noted a difference between um, the trustworthiness of the um, perceived AI-generated versus human-generated profiles. And so they, they wanted to get a bit more information about what was driving that untrustworthiness 
trustworthiness. They decided to expand the study a little bit for, um, for the third study. And in particular, some of the changes were based on, so they're, they're basically curious if the, um, the uncertainty in the profile, like who, who wrote it, um, was it AI or human generated, um, that uncertainty led to the difference. And so to check this, they used um, some labeled profiles for one of the treatment groups in study three. What does that mean, labeled profiles? Ah, uh, great question. I, I I'll, I'll mention that in just a moment. Okay. Um, yeah. So they they changed a couple other things, but um, but another big change was that they considered a, a larger group of profiles. So in study one and study two, they only used ten profiles, while in study three they used thirty profiles. Okay, got it. So while well, ten and thirty are not large numbers, and I can sort of imagine some amount of subject burnout if they have to go through too many. So maybe that's reasonable. You also noted treatment groups. How many were there for study three? What was the setup there? Yeah, okay, yeah. So getting back also to your previous question. So for study three, they had a control group um, and they were told that all the profiles were human written. And then they also with that had three treatment groups. So one group had um, labeled profiles as human versus AI. So um, instead of the subjects having to figure out was this human or AI generated, they um, they were actually told based on the, the labeling. And then another treatment group was presented with the unlabeled profiles. And then the third treatment group was also shown unlabeled profiles, but they were instructed to provide the, um, the AI score, so how much they believed it was AI generated before specifying the trustworthiness of the profile, which was different a different order from the other treatment group and also from, um, from study two. Are there any interesting results then that they discovered in study three? Yeah, and so actually one thing I didn't mention earlier, but is relevant for one of the results I, I found particularly interesting in, in study three is that, um, so for the 30 profiles they used, um, so they were labeled as AI or, or human generated profiles based on a previous experiment. And so this, um, this previous experiment, um, subjects had been shown 100 profiles and asked if they thought the profile was written by a human or an AI. And then the 15 with the highest human-like ratings were used as the human-generated profiles, and the 15 with the highest AI-like ratings were used as the AI-generated profiles for study three. And so in the study three control group, though, where the subjects thought they were all human written, so even though they, the 15 had the different labels in um, the control group, they, were, they did, were not aware of this. They just thought they were all human generated and they were trying to um, specify their trustworthiness scores. And, uh, and so in, in the study three control group, where they thought they were all human written, the so-called AI profiles actually received higher trustworthiness scores. So, uh, so furthermore, in the treatment group with the labeled profiles, those um, those same AI labeled profiles received lower trustworthiness scores. Huh. So overall, it sounds like when a subject thought a profile could have been AI generated, they tended to find the host less trustworthy. Yes, yeah, it's uh, it's it's interesting, uh, in, and um, the researchers noted that some of the subjects had indicated some um, some resentment for the hosts whom they thought. <laughs> had used AI to write their profiles. And, and in the paper, they include this one quote by one of the subjects. And the quote says, um, they can be handy, but also a bit lazy, which makes me question what else they'll be lazy about. 
<laughs> so <laughs> it's, it's interesting. That's really funny, but I guess it also makes sense. It would make you wonder a bit. This person's so lazy, they can't even write their own profile. What else are they going to slack off on? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But uh, so, you know, overall, this was kind of a, an, in, an intriguing study. And the researchers note, though, a few limitations. Um, one that, um, that stood out in their paper was um, that they did not test if the differing trustworthiness levels would actually result in any change of behavior. So that is, if you perceive a profile as less trustworthy, would you actually be less likely to stay at that location? But the, the question that I actually had throughout reading it, reading the paper, was if any of the subjects had actually used Airbnb previously. So mm. if so, you know, were there any differences between those subjects and the non-Airbnb subject? Because I could see, for example, Airbnb hosts caring really more about how actual Airbnb users perceive their profiles compared to others who may not generally be interested in Airbnb. Yeah, that makes sense that the um, that people who have not used Airbnb, they maybe don't have the kind of context for what matters when looking for a particular vacation rental. Yeah, exactly. And as you said, you, know, you look at those who have stayed there, what their comments are to get a, a better sense of, of what the place is like. Yeah. So this actually reminds me of something else, Jesse. A while back, I was on LinkedIn just exploring some of its new features. I actually don't know if they are new features or if they're just new to me because I hadn't maintained my LinkedIn profile that well. Um, and, and it seemed like there were just these things that I could go in and fill and buttons I could click. One of them was a little self-written summary field that I had totally neglected to fill it in. Um, do you know about this, Jesse? So do, do you mean the text that would appear right below your name? No, that's actually what they call a headline that you can mm. use to describe yourself. That I think is meant to be a bit more succinct. So that's also something that confused me, right? I, I guess they just wanted to give you a ton of places where you could talk about yourself. So, <laughs> so another area was called the summary and I, I definitely had it blank. It still is blank. And LinkedIn wanted me to go in and modify this and write something. And just to really encourage me to use that feature, it even wrote something in there for for me. So I just went in there today and this is what it recommended that I use for my summary. It said, experience lecture with a demonstrated history of working in the higher education industry, skilled in PHP, statistical modeling, MATLAB, Microsoft Excel, and data analysis. Strong research professional with a PhD focused in statistics from Yale University. So there you go. My own profile can be written by an AI. Does that sound AI generated to you, Jesse? You know, it actually isn't too bad at all. Like, um, presumably LinkedIn picked up these pieces of information from your, your work experience and your skills. Yep. But of course, I wouldn't have written something like this at all, right? Because PHP, which I had once upon a time used um, to write websites, I guess in my teenage years, <laughs> isn't something that I even remember. And it's definitely not relevant, relevant to my job anymore. And the MATLAB thing, I wonder if somebody endorsed me for MATLAB, which I feel kind of sheepish that I don't deserve it because I may have used it. I don't think I remember very much about it. So, so really, these are, these are problems. But otherwise, it seems very natural. They're stuffing in the right keywords, the strong words like experienced and strong. Um, you know, professional industry. These are these are kind of good things to appear in a summary. So I guess the AI did a pretty decent job. Yeah. And I mean, it just seems like a nice time saver. Yeah. Maybe I'll think about using it in the future at some point. Yeah, me too. <laughs>
Thanks for listening to Data Bytes. If you have any questions or suggestions or comments for us, please email us at databytes.podcast at gmail.com. That's databytes with a Y. And if you want to see the numerous articles that served as reference material for today's show, please visit our website at databytespodcast.github.io. Till next time.